0: Hello, the internet, and welcome
2: to season 233, episode 5 of The Daily Guy Hey, ah! production of iHeartRadio. This, well, this is a podcast where we take a deep dive into America's shared consciousness, and it is Friday, April 22nd, 2022, which means it's Earth Day. Mm-hmm. How's, how is Earth Day going? Are we winning?
3: the earth oh, don't you might not want to check the score line of that one <laughs> check the bot score on earth although earth. it does feel like we're moving the goal post back we're now like climate scientists like I think we can I think we can manage two degrees change like if we <laughs> really get it together uh-huh. now but we got to get it together now anybody hearing that no uh, but yes uh, take this moment to you know get in touch with the earth and maybe consider the massive work that is in front of us to uh, maintain life on this planet
2: I mean, I do my part. I don't just throw my trash everywhere on Earth Day in particular. Right. And once in a while, I will use the paper straws that they give me. You should in, in my drink.
3: Hey, invest there. You know, there's good. There's good. Uh, real compostable, bio-de- biodegradable stuff out there that's got the good mouth feel. You know. So, mm mm-hmm. You know, what? would
2: Bamboo shoots? Is that yeah, what you're? Yeah, yeah. I had a.
3: I used a bamboo straw the other day. I was like, yeah, I'm a, this isn't. This isn't bad. At least it was eight hey, miles.
2: Speaking of straws, yeah. my name is Jack O'Brien, a.k.a. <laughs> Straw Sucking Fangs Forever, uh, it was courtesy, courtesy of Ruthie Fudge, shout out to Ruthie, and yeah, the, a lot of people out there who thought that vampire fangs were hollow and sucked yes. blood through them. So we, we were not alone in that misconception. Absolutely and in not. fact, maybe a lot of the culture that led us that way was created by people who believed that as well. Yeah. Anyways, I'm thrilled to be joined, as always, by my co-host, Mr. Miles Gray.
3: Miles Gray, a.k.a. Call Me Jack's co-host and Sophia's, too. I'm Miles of Gray, Miles of Gray. He says, I know what I want and I want it now. Some cold brew, cause I'm Miles of Gray. <laughs> <Woo>! <laughs> shout out to Christy. I'm a Gucci uh-huh. man at Waffle House for that Mr. Vane inspired, AKA. What a track! A classic. Yeah. That was great. Yeah. A great
2: Yamaguchi, main classic. Well, yeah. Miles, we are thrilled to be joined by a reporter and the author of the new book, Nazi Billionaires, The Dark History of Germany's Wealthiest Dynasties. It is David Dion!
3: David!
4: Welcome. Good morning. Good afternoon. Yes. Yeah, yeah. How's welcome doing? To the show. Thank you. Oh, oh man. man. Doing well. Yeah.
3: How is New York? You're in New York, yeah? Yeah. What's, what's good in New York?
4: Things are good. It's still chilly out, you know? I think there's two weeks... Of spring are about to hit, right? That's what I'm hoping for,
2: yeah. Before, mm-hmm.
4: before summer starts, but, are we basing um,
2: that on any meteorol- meteorological evidence or just the groundhog? Are, are we at that point in the groundhog
4: calendar? This is purely this is pure gut feeling, gut, feeling, gut feeling. Yeah, going like off the of gut. Yeah, yeah, That's yeah, that. yeah.
2: How are are you? Where are you in your like kind of book tour, book publicity? My understanding is those are exhausting.
4: I am. Yeah, I just started. I gave my first talk right. last night. The book came out on Tuesday, so it's been uh, it's been 4 days of man.
3: Yeah. Nice. And I I've, I've been listening and reading some of your other interviews and stuff and have you have you yet to get any uh media opportunities from German media yet?
4: Nope. Not yet. No, not yet. yet. Oh, not over yet. Time. Keeping my fingers crossed. I mean the the German translation is going to get published on May 5th. Okay, and okay. the German book tour starts mid-May, or May 20th, to be exact. Sure. So, you know, Germans, I guess that's also a little bit the overall point of my book. Germans are a little bit slow, Some, or at least some Germans are a little bit slow on the pickup. Yeah.
3: yeah. <laughs> a little uh, bit. Same, yeah. <laughs> pretty similar stuff happening here, right, too. Right. Yeah. yeah,
4: true. reckoning. Yes, indeed. <laughs> yes, out. indeed. Yes, indeed. Yeah. Absolutely.
2: All right. Well, we are going to get to know you a little bit better in a moment. First, we're going to tell our listeners a couple of things we're talking about. We are going to talk about your book. Uh, Some of the revelations in the book are like the type of things. I say this about stories every once in a while, but like when I read your book, I'm like, wait, why is this not the only thing we're talking about all the time ever? (laughs) It's just fucking wild. So we'll get into the details. Yeah, I'm sure. So we'll talk about that. We'll talk about Coachella. We're going to just how lit it is, like the dope (laughs) Instagram pictures we've all seen. And everybody that I follow on Instagram has aged out, I think, which I I think is healthy. But like there's nobody's going to Instagram or or nobody's going to Coachella.
4: Yep. Same here.
3: Yeah. At least you get now like billionaires going. And the Property Brothers guy is, the, or what is it, a Selling Sunset guy. It's like, like we said, it's, it's, uh, it's all these festivals end up shifting. But
2: yeah. So we'll talk about all that, plenty more. But first, David, we do like to ask our guests, what is something from your search history?
4: So I had my book party on Tuesday at the Neue Gallery in New York. Nice. And um, I Googled the, the centerpiece of the permanent collection of that museum is the painting by Gustav Klimt of Adele Blochbauer I. It was immortalized by, in this movie called The Woman in Gold, which Helen Mirren plays Maria Altman, the heiress who's trying to get the painting that is stolen from her family by the Nazis back. She lives in Los Angeles and the lawyer is played by, I always forget his name, but he is married to Blake Lively. Oh, Uh, Ryan Reynolds. Yeah, Ryan Reynolds, exactly. Good for you. Ryan Reynolds, Reynolds
2: Blake Lively's husband, whatever his name is. exactly. (laughs) (laughs) In his, probably, like, one of the last roles where he was like, I don't know, like, I don't always have to be, like, the quippy, funny, like, Deadpool guy, sometimes I can be a just a lawyer who's right. trying to write a historic wrong
4: exactly and i wanted to know more about that history i mean i saw the movie but i wanted to know more about the history so that's the the, the before i had the party so that's the last in my uh, in my google searches
2: Nice. nice. And what did you find out? So they, I'm assuming based on the fact that it was a Hollywood movie and that you had your book launch at a museum that features the painting that the historic injustice was eventually righted? or
4: It was indeed by the U.S. Supreme Court who who, who ruled that, they, that the Austrian government had to return the stolen painting or the, the looted collection of paintings back to Maria Altman in Los Angeles. Ronald Lauder a famous billionaire in New York ends up buying the painting for 120 million from Maria Altman. And um, the other painting, Gustav Klimt only ever drew two paintings of Adele Bloch-Bauer, who was his muse and patron. And the other one was bought by Oprah Winfrey. I found out. So wow. that uh, and was later sold on to a, a Chinese billionaire. So it's yet again it's it's billionaires galore and we're just living a world where you know we're we're all servants to billionaires
3: yeah. 100%. They're like, "Oh yeah, it's just a good asset to park my
4: money in." Right. Yeah.
2: And just they have it in like a airport like hangar somewhere or whoa do yeah. like that's that's always interesting when a billionaire buys a great work of art. Like is there anything to indicate that we've even like we're able to even see the best works of art, or that yeah, like a, a billionaire question. doesn't just like own like yeah. some of the
4: best work yeah, you're works of right. art. Yeah. yeah, I mean, there's so many, so many artworks are indeed in these text free hangars all across the world. You know, in Switzerland, in Singapore. So you're right. You know, we've only seen a sliver of what's out there in museums. I mean, Ronald right. Lauder donated it to his own museum, the Neue Gallery, in New York, where it's the centerpiece of the permanent collection alongside other magnificent works
2: yeah my favorite art is always at the sackler museum because yeah, i can yeah. just feel good about their you know their background i haven't done a ton <laughs> of research but i feel like they're yes.
3: on the yeah. up and up and they're in like all the cool people. galleries i wonder what the, <laughs> right. where they got their money I don't yeah know, the but they like art and that's all that matters
4: <laughs> increasingly less increasingly. Yeah. Yes. Right. Yeah.
3: yeah. Exactly. Well, yeah, once people begin having reckonings with like right. what's that name represent? Yes. No, 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 no. Yeah. Bring that down.
4: Empire of Pain, of course, the book. that Patrick yeah. Keith, of right. pain. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. What is something you think is overrated? I think Manchester United is the most overrated soccer team Uh-oh. in the. Hey, history Hey, all right. I like that. Of, of soccer. <laughs> they, they, it was announced <laughs> that they that Manchester United, which has many fans stateside as well. Except for in the city of Manchester, where everybody supports native Man- Mancunians support Manchester City. to the fact it's very little, you know, very little known. Manchester United announced yesterday that they poached the coach of my of my soccer team, Ajax Amsterdam, and uh, I think you know Manchester United has even under Ferguson they've never uh, under Sir Sir Alec Ferguson they've never played soccer in an attractive way. There's never been like a team. Manchester United team, which played, like, attractive soccer ever. So I think they're, like, the most overrated thing. And uh <laughs> it's just out there, yeah.
3: Not personal at all, yeah. Mm, not, right. not feeling the, the <laughs> poaching of Eric right. Ten Hag. It has nothing to do with it. Completely
4: unrelated. I've been saying this for 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 years, but now I have a news angle that, 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 that you know, affects me right. personally as an Ajax fan, that I can finally say this on record. Yeah,
3: yeah, no. Uh, Jack, I know you. you're... Obviously, following everything that's been happening since Sir Alex's departure, I'm mad.
2: I'm I'm pissed over here. (laughs) Is that's interesting? Like, just you know, only having context of following it through miles. I I didn't know that Manchester United was like not even Manchester's team. That's yeah. That always sucks.
3: I mean, it's like one of the best marketed English clubs out there, and it's you know one of the the biggest, probably the biggest name in English soccer. Still, I mean, although Liverpool is. You know, basically leveling up on the number of championships. Liverpool. they have, But Liverpool, uh, shout out Virgil Van Dyke over there. Yep. Shout
2: out straw sucking fangs forever.
3: <laughs> but you know, it was the smashing by Liverpool that sort of catalyzed all of this. And they're like, all right, we gotta we gotta start really figuring this out because they're huh? they're completely out of sorts. And they're doing they did this thing where I, I, we see a lot of even like in the NBA happens where clubs or teams are just going for really big name signings without much consideration for the long like the longevity of the franchise or how it affects the youth development and you keep paying exorbitant fees they've they've spent something like one billion dollars since 2012 and now they're looking at a rebuild of at least having to replace like three-fourths of their entire squad yeah
2: yeah i was trying to think immediately trying to think of the nba corollary and i guess uh, despite the fact that I'm rooting for them and am more devastated when they lose than when the Sixers my team loses in this first round uh, I feel like the Nets might be the closest thing in that they're like not New York's team but they have like all this talent and like a lot of people are interested in them around the country yeah but but it doesn't yeah. seem to be working out thus far
3: yeah and like I think to what they were saying they 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 win, you know, like that's the thing they would win. It wasn't necessarily like, oh, you know, the way they, they play attractive, free flowing football with a lot of like triangles or things like that. They usually just were able to if Sir Alex Ferguson was just able to put together a bunch of winners and they just won games.
4: Mm. Yeah.
3: But that one season when they had Rooney, Ronaldo and Tevez, I think was pretty obscene uh, to look at up front.
2: Uh, yeah, I can't agree more. Uh, what is something you think is uh, what's something you
4: think is underrated? I think the state of Maine is terribly underrated.
2: Hey, wow. all right, okay, go on. I've been there.
4: I've been. I've finally, after many decades, so my favorite writer of all time, who I also think is terribly underrated, Stephen King, is yeah, is from Maine, and I I recently got to do a little literary pilgrimage up to Maine, drove up to Portland and Bangor and all these beautiful seaside towns and went into the wilderness. And I just, I loved it.
3: Yeah. What is it, what What about your perception prior to it and then experiencing what sort of, what was the sort of shift that you had and sort of saying, you know what, this place is actually a bit of all right.
4: I just find it so beautiful, just pure, mm. like the, the, an incredible wilderness. Uh, the nature is just is stunning. The people are incredibly friendly. The lobster roll stays so good. <laughs> right. It's just I found it to be idyllic and tranquil. I loved it, mm. and nobody ever talks about Maine, except for yeah. their, their one their one senator, this, and this John town.
2: Hodgman. Yeah, those those <laughs> appear John to be Hodgman,
3: the two. Susan Collins, right. Stephen King, and yeah. I guess you get their you know their governor is always talked about here and there, but yeah. Paula Page, I think is his name, but yeah, I used to go when I played hockey pretty competitively. Mm-hmm. I had gone to Bangor in Portland before to play hockey, but that was many years ago. And I remember as a kid, just like for the first time ever seeing New England, I was like, "Wow, this is so different than anything I know right. growing up in Los Angeles." But I haven't been since uh, in my adulthood. But yeah, I feel like maybe it's time to check it out again.
2: Yeah, it's it's first of all huge, which I guess a lot of America <laughs> is huge, but it's a you just. I, I drove there from Boston one time back when I lived in Boston. And, you know, you hit Maine like two hours in, and then it's like five more hours to get like halfway up the state of Maine. But it's right. truly beautiful. There's a mountain there, Mount Katahdin, that's like a great, uh, a lot of fun to climb and just beautiful and like whitewater rapids all over the place. What I, I'm interested in, you are Stephen King literary appreciation what what is the like I, I've I've heard this argument before that like Stephen King centuries from now will still be seen as like one of the great American writers like mm-hmm. w- what is a a book that you think is like underrated in terms of its place in the literary canon by Stephen King
4: oh uh, the stand yeah by, uh, which yeah is my favorite book of all time or favorite fiction book of all time
0: mm-hmm.
4: does not get the kudos i think it deserves i mean the cbs did a terrible remake of it last year
2: oh they did one last year yeah i remember yeah i remember the tv remake yeah. that was like a an event when i was a kid like that's right. one of the only like tv mini series from my childhood that like i remember
4: everybody I,
2: was talking about and really I, captured the zeitgeist
4: i i forced my entire my uh, my 12th birthday slumber party, I forced the entire, my entire group of friends to binge eight hours of that miniseries. We're talking 1996 <laughs> here.
1: <laughs> a biblical allegory, eight hours long,
5: just For grinding through birthday. it
2: with 12-year-olds. That's amazing. No, you don't close your eyes. <laughs> People remember, falling asleep. I
4: remember just like, 5 a.m. Some of the girls got up and we were just pissed and they left. You know, I mean, and this is, mind you, <laughs> this was in Amsterdam as well, where I grew up. So right. they, this was a bunch of 12-year-olds who were not native English speakers who right. you know had to go sit through subtitles. And, wow. <laughs> so, yeah. Were you,
3: yeah. I just picture that you are the one person just <laughs> sit sat in front of like the screen just so engrossed while everyone else is like,
4: <laughs> yeah. What yeah. The fuck? And, you know, we we weren't even stoned. You know, we right? Were.
3: Yeah, twelve is pretty pretty were childhood fascination. We were right. yeah. yeah,
2: it's also funny. Like a sleepover with girls there at twelve is like so unheard of in America. It's funny that that you just casually mentioned, like.
3: Oh right, our puritanical upbringing. <laughs> yeah, our puritanical their, like, like, thing is wow. little I'll girls and little boys sleeping Do, near each yeah. other. Oh. Don't
4: don't, don't, uh, don't underestimate the Dutch puritanical roots, you know. Sure, sure,
2: right. You you just lived in a cool household.
4: Yeah. Yeah, I guess my right. parents were, were 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 pretty relaxed and things in Amsterdam are more chill than than they are right. in the in the Dutch countryside where puritanism still reigns. Right, right, right. 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 Yeah.
2: Well, you know, my the only place I'd argue with you is you saying The Stand was a fictional book, because after Obama came to power, I think uh, we all knew that that Stephen King was seeing the future. Am I right, that guy? <laughs> Wasn't there a lot of, like, he's like the bad guy from The Stand shit when Obama was first coming to power? Really? I don't know, maybe that was just me and my pals. Uh, <laughs> that now, sounds I, like well, something. There was a lot of like Antichrist stuff, and I think the bad guy in the stand was yeah. a
4: Rendell pretty flag. Yeah,
3: yeah. Was oh, trash
4: Rudy. can fire guy. What's his name? The Rendell I... flag. RF initials. Oh, oh, RF. oh
3: yeah, yeah. Mm. Got it. I'm thinking of the pyromaniac character.
4: Oh yeah, uh, the trash can man. Right, right. Yeah. <laughs> it's like that's Obama.
3: <laughs> but yeah. Oh man, it's it's wild when people like just we if we see it constantly, especially in uh, American culture like. This thing I saw on TV, I probably connects to this real life event that I'm experiencing <laughs> now, and I will now map this onto it. Yeah,
2: and then they just made the Antichrist miniseries on the History Channel, right? Or what, was it History Channel or National Geographic, where they just cast like a Barack Obama look like as the Antichrist?
4: Oh, oh, yeah, Ooh, I missed that. <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> I missed that. Yeah. Oh no,
3: yeah, the U.S. telling on it itself again. Oof. Yeah. You? Yeah. Oh, the Bible, I think The is Bible what it's from. is the one yes. I was thinking of. Have you guys channel. heard of this
2: one? The Bible? Have you heard about Va- this? Vaguely, wow. vaguely,
3: vaguely. <laughs> they really did what that's uh that's a that's a strong what look. channel was it on? The History Channel. Yeah, man. That's yeah.
2: <laughs> gotta gotta reach out to those middle American viewers.
3: Yeah. Right, get right. them on board. Just yep, keep that narrative alive. Brown skin equals danger, folks. This is yep. America.
2: Is there a shorter Stephen King book for like maybe people who are like, yeah, all right, fun You've worn me down. Stephen King is a great writer. What should I read first? Do you, do you have one beyond yeah. the stand?
4: Yeah, definitely. Um, Salem's Lot, which is one of his first books, mm. is only, only runs 200, 300 pages.
2: Uh shorter than that. Sorry, man. You're gonna yeah. have to like, bring it in. Uh, uh, <laughs> no, I'm just joking. Uh, <laughs> is that a, uh,
4: that's gonna be, is that's, that a gonna movie? be tough. that's gonna be tough. With, with, ah, um, with talking with more CMG. like twelve, thirteen pages. <laughs> you blow through it. I mean, yeah, no, just, I know. Yeah, his, yeah. yeah.
2: His, his books are extremely readable. Like they kind of read themselves. They're great. As is a book that we're going to talk about right after this break. Yep, we'll be right back. And we're back. And yeah, so like we said, up top, you know, the the I I used to work for a website called Cracked. We did an article early on, like those one of our more popular articles that was like these five major corporations had major (laughs) had major roles in Nazi Germany, like Hugo Boss being like the outfitter of a lot of Nazi uniforms and stuff like that. and at the time i was like that 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 seems like how is this not the only thing people are talking about when they like mention these companies but yeah you've done an actual like journalistic deep dive into some of the wealthiest dynasties in germany like talking 20 30 billion dollars yep. being controlled by these families and just looking back at the so, some of the details of the history that are whitewashed out of the stories that they tell, and it's it's pretty mind-blowing. Can you just talk about your journey to like kind of get to this information?
4: Definitely, I mean, I started reporting on this topic back when I was at Bloomberg News in New York, and I joined a investigative team at Bloomberg uh, back in late 2011 that focused on family owned companies and and family offices and hidden wealth and billionaire fortunes. And I was soon asked, I was hired as one of the reporters covering the Americas, but, or covering North America. But because I'm a native Dutchman, I was soon asked if I could add the, the German speaking countries to my beat. And that's how I began reporting on this mix of history and big business and finance in Germany and how I stumbled upon all these very secretive families that control massive family offices that invest all over the world, but that also control global brands like BMW and Porsche and Audi and Bentley and Lamborghini and MINI and Rolls-Royce and Seat, and Skoda, and, you know, uh, Volkswagen, and it's not only limited to the car manufacturing, you know, consumer goods as well in the US. I mean, you have one family, a German family, that controls Panera Bread, and Krispy Kreme Donuts, and and Pete's Coffee, and current Green Mountain, and they all have, you know, these really insanely gripping stories, and brutal stories, uh, histories of their patriarchs being responsible, for taking partaking in the atrocities that happened under Adolf Hitler in in, in not only Nazi Germany but also in, in in occupied Europe. Right, and I feel like even to like
3: Jack's point, like up top, right. I think when a lot of even people who feel historically savvy, like at least in the U.S., when you say. You, when you think of companies that were quote working with the Nazis, right. the first things reflexively are like Hugo Boss made SS yeah. uniforms, or like BMW with the Luftwaffe, or what Luftwaffe or whatever. Yeah, we have these like very sort of like in a vacuum almost, where the story is like, yeah, well they made stuff for them, and then the then the Third Reich was over, and then they just started making their their stuff again. And I think what's great is that like your book is saying like that's not the extent of how any of this worked. And I think we have a very sort of superficial understanding of how these like these families or companies amass their wealth and things like that. But why do you think that we have maybe this one version where it's cleanly just sort of like they just made stuff and we're not getting into the coerced labor and like
4: seized land and things like that? It's because those companies are no longer controlled by families that are relevant. Right. So, so these families, they do everything to leave that part of their history out on the websites of BMW, on charitable foundations, or the website of Porsche. You would never know the controlling families. You could never connect. And it's a little bit like the Sackler story, too, where you saw the Sackler name everywhere, right? But, but mm-hmm. nobody could connect the Sackler family to the company they controlled, which was Purdue Pharma. You know, with with like BMW being controlled by the quants, you know, there's no, there's no, you know, there's no name to it. And Hugo Boss, I, I mean, if I got a dollar for every time somebody asked me where Hugo Boss was right. going to be in my book, I would be like a multi I would be a billionaire myself. <laughs> <Right. So, laughs> Hugo Boss, I mean, is is you know, the quants who now control BMW, were massive textile manufacturers, also made all these uniforms forms for the SS, for the Wehrmacht, you know. And, and and it's always for some reason that they come back to Hugo Boss, you know, which is no, there is no Hugo Boss, there is no boss family anymore that controls right. Hugo Boss already for many, many decades. But for some reason, that name has stuck into like global consciousness of being like what the main company to work together for a Nazi war machine, you know.
2: And it's, right. yeah, the the amazing thing about your book is it's not just, like, excavating skeletons in the closets of these successful business dynasties and it's like, oh, like, there's a picture of them and they were, like, in the SS. But, you know, the companies, the dynasties are, like, built on their ability to exploit, like, you know, slave labor or forced labor and, like, some of the the greatest injustices of the past hundred years and then yeah, it's like the foundations of their companies, of some of like these most recognizable brands in the world today. And it's just amazing. Like the story about Flick, I think in particular, is that the one who or no, i think I think it was the Porsche story where yeah. they basically the way that they got control of the company or as much control as they did is that you write in nineteen thirty five like the Porsche patriarch basically, like, bought out his Jewish partner mm-hmm. after, like, you know, it was it was basically not okay for that partner to own as much of the company and they got it for, like, very bargain-basement, like, rates and stuff. And totally. they never addressed it. And then didn't they, like, basically say that the partner was trying to, like, extort them
4: or yeah. some shit? Yeah, yeah. So you have, so Adolf Rosenberger, which was one of the, three co-founders of of Porsche gets bought out way under the market value of his shares because he's because he's Jewish in 1935 uh, in Germany a few weeks before the Nuremberg race laws are enacted so he is bought out of the company way way below for what his shares were worth subsequently adding insult to injury out of Rosenberger is erased from comp- from from Porsche's corporate history Founding history, making it even worse. Ferry Porsche, the son of the, the of of the co-founder of Porsche, and the man who designed the first Porsche sports car, in his first autobiography, which was exclusively published in the U.S. because Porsche for, for America was the most important market for Porsche, is still today to an extent spews like the most virulent uh, anti-Semitic vitriol about Adolf Rosenberger, who at that point has died in in, in LA. He managed to flee Nazi Germany, settles in America. And it's just, I mean, it's beyond belief. And then the irony today is that you have, you know, a global foundation, the very Porsche Foundation, which is sponsoring, you know, a professorship in corporate history. And the Porsche family has never addressed any part of you know the, the Third Reich activities of their of 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 Ferdinand or Ferry Porsche. I mean, it's 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 perverse,
3: right? Do you mind kind of like explaining for people because I think, like I was saying, we just have a very element just sure, elementary sure, understanding sure, sure. of how how a company or a or a dynasty is enriched by their proximity to the leadership of the Third Reich and benefiting from the policies of the Third sure.
4: Reich. After, I mean, after. Hitler seizes power in Germany in January nineteen thirty three. He initiates this massive rearmament push. So he billions, the billions and billions flow into, into the factories and companies of German industrialists and, and German German businessmen who start producing for Germany, for, for the German for the Nazi war machine, you know, in the run up to the war already, right? So that's one. So mass arms production, mass weapons production was, was one of the ways to benefit from it. Secondly, you had, you know, and that's the example that I just gave of Adolf Rosenberger, the coerced forced selling by Jews in Germany of their assets, either forcibly because they're put under pressure or because they want to flee Germany and want to get rid of their possessions as soon as possible uh, in order to escape the, the regime. They have to sell whatever they own at fire sale prices. Of course, once the war starts and and Germany invades the rest of Europe, you know it's not only Jews in in, in Germany and Austria whose possessions get looted. It is also just you know people living in occupied territories whose possessions get sold. I mean, you, you see it now also with what Russia is doing in Ukraine. You know, you see like Russian soldiers looting. You know, the possessions of of Ukrainians. Thirdly, of course, because most German men were at the front fighting, you have this massive system of forced and slave labor that is enacted by the Nazi regime, where you have millions and millions of Europeans that are captured, men, women, even teenagers, that are deported to Germany and are forced to work in, in factories and mines. Either forced labor where you got paid a pittance or a slave labor where you got paid nothing. And the five families I write about in the book, you know, in various ways profited from it greatly. And many of them were already exceptionally wealthy before Hitler came to power. Only the Porsche Piech family that today controls the Volkswagen group, Porsche, Bentley, Lamborghini, Audi, can really you can really say that they laid the foundation for their fortune during the Third Reich, with Ferdinand Porsche designing the Volkswagen, convincing Hitler to put it into production, and of course the the the, the founding of the uh, of the Porsche car design firm, which after the war becomes the Porsche sports car company.
2: Right. Jesus. And like, I mean, so it seems obvious why you write this book but like i i just want to kind of underline because i i do think people in some respects have just accepted the cruelty of like capitalism and right. just, like yeah well that was a long time ago and sure. they got away with it and that's just how capitalism works but yeah, I, I guess I'm just curious, like how what what has the reception been like? I, I guess you're kind of at the early stages of it, but you know what what are you hoping people will will take from this book?
4: I mean, the driving argument of the book is is historical transparency. I mean, the reason right. why I wrote ended up writing the book is because you have BMW and Porsche maintaining these massive global foundations uh, that also do charity work in the U.S. and in the names of their, you know, patriarchs or founders or, or exalted saviors, we're celebrating their business successes, but not being transparent about the war crimes they committed or the Nazi affiliations that they had. And I think, you know, one learns from history by being transparent about the good and the bad. You know, if you just show that somebody saved BMW from 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 bankruptcy in 1959. But you don't say that they that they built and dismantled a sub-concentration camp in Nazi-occupied Poland, or that they had you know prisoners of war and forced laborers used at the private estate, or that he acquired companies stolen from Jews in France, or overseeing battery factories in in, in Berlin where where thousands of forced and slave laborers were used, including female slave laborers from 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 concentration camps. Then what you know? What is you know? You're 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 just whitewashing history. You're leaving out history, and especially at a time today where disinformation is so omnipresent, you know you you especially these massive global corporations and these billionaire families. You know, right. with great power comes great responsibility. You have to be at, at the bare minimum. I mean, I'm asking for the bare minimum, right? Be transparent about in the- the name of the person you're, you're conducting philanthropy in, or you're giving out media prizes, or you're giving out, you know, you, you have your corporate headquarters named after them.
2: Yeah. The corporate headquarters and the foundations are often named after like the Nazi, the the right. Nazi right. Patriarch. Like right. it's, they're right. not even trying to fucking hide it no. and they're not trying to atone in any way. They're, you know, they're well, not like, showing it either.
4: That's the problem. Right. right. That's right. the problem. Yeah. You know, and if you don't want to do that, you should rename it. If you don't want to be transparent about your history, then don't call it after, because there's no way. I mean, you have the BMW Herbert Quant Foundation, whose motto is inspire responsible leadership in the name of a man who committed war crimes. And there's, and there's, and the only thing it says on the website is he saved BMW from bankruptcy in 1959. And I think that's, you know, I I don't think that's right. No, no talk of Nuremberg, huh? Exactly. (laughs) But he didn't make it, he didn't make it to Nuremberg. So
3: Mm. this is the interesting thing is like, it just reminds me so much of the reckoning that the U S can never have with, you know, like, like you've even pointed out, the automotive industry is so relevant to German culture. And to even begin to examine that and say, is this thing that is foundational to our culture kind of soaked in blood? Is that, Is that something that we can reckon with, that there is a dark side to this? Very similarly to the U.S., where like a lot of people, when you start bringing up the legacy of slavery, the response is like, yeah, I know it's bad, okay, but I don't really want to think about it anymore. And that was a long time ago. And like, let's just keep going without ever understanding, like the banks that most people use were handling money from the slave trade or the like people who have descended from slave owners who are in prominent positions or dynastic families that are in the same way, is that, do you see that sort of reluctance sort of being parallel in this sort of like, we don't wanna really look at our, the benefits that that like, you know, maybe we are experiencing in our national economy that's rooted in something much darker.
4: Totally, but I do think that, you know, the U.S. is now going through a time and you particularly saw it in 2020 where there is this very painful discussion going on, which Germany already had a long time ago. Mm -hmm. It's just that Germany's most powerful and wealthiest do not want to, you know, are seeming to be completely cut off from reality, right? In the US, you know, this reckoning, as I see it, is only just beginning, and there's gonna be so much more of a confrontation with that history over over the next couple of decades as more things come to the fore, as this, you know, as this topic remains at the forefront of, of a national discussion, and as the fights over statues in the South or of, of Confederate generals, of racist presidents in, you know, and at, at Princeton, of Christopher Columbus. These, these debates, I feel in, in America, it's only just starting. And, mm-hmm. you know, I hope to see it. It's 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 extremely painful, but I hope to see those debates intensify because it's a conversation that's long overdue.
3: Right. And so how do you see that reckoning, like that the stages of reckoning? Because if Germany is in this advanced place, because right. I know like in the curriculum, it's not like America where we're right. actively in a process of yeah. banning people from knowing anything about United States history. If it has anything to do with, you know, something that could make the country yeah. look bad.
4: Yeah, it's it's
3: the the stage that there's this reckoning where most people are, because of public education and the messaging and the media, we're like, okay, we understand this is our history. It's bad. We need to reckon with it. And then it just sort of cools off and sort of gets to a place where we acknowledge that it's bad. It's not a place to go back to, but let's not really look back at it too much because we've already done the reckoning. Is that sort of the energy or is that sort of the inertia that you're trying to break kind of with bringing this discussion back up? Or just bringing this discussion to light?
4: I feel there's a massive discrepancy between German society which is so acutely aware of its collective guilt of remembrance culture and the most powerful in Germany that pretend to an extent or at least outwardly pretend that you know, they are the people who 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 created the billions for them uh did nothing did nothing wrong at least that's what they show right It's what it come, comes down to in practice you know mm-hmm. i think there's a massive discrepancy in that because owning up to that means disavowing your father or grandfather who of course you know these heirs did not create their fortunes so they 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 derived their entire identity from their father saving BMW from bankruptcy, or for their father uh, constructing the first Porsche sports car, for making the billions that they now live of, right. so it also becomes a question of identity. But the problem is, of course, that these 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 men and women they control swaths of the global economy. You know, they right. they produce consumer goods that 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 everybody uses every day. So it doesn't i. I feel that they don't seem to realize the kind of responsibility that they have.
2: Yeah, I mean, on the one hand, like, yeah, they seem like this is a, I don't know, it it just feels like this is really of a piece with a larger trend we just see across the global economy, which is that not, not only does it send a message that in the modern world, you can become the sort of like rarefied winner of just everything like escape the human condition, have your name remembered after death on buildings and streets by exploiting war crimes. But it just sends a message that like thoroughly and ultimately like the, you know, guilt and innocence and like morality, like don't matter. And as long as you're making money and I feel like that we just, people are just now coming to grips with that. And like, we, pathologize and diagnose and medically treat our unhelp unhappiness in a system that like tells us everywhere every day that like well but you know you're kind like it doesn't say it would never say this instead they would create a foundation that would like ultimately find academically that they would never say something like this but what all the actions and like outcomes of everything tell you that we are insignificant rounding errors in a massive system that's like ultimately designed to create wealthy people and have those extremely wealthy people
4: kind of perpetuate their wealth wow jack you put that so depressingly well
2: <laughs> when i see individual examples like this like it feels like you know we are like this is a correctable thing like hold yeah. people accountable for their immoral actions especially when they're rich because yeah. like when they're rich and use that wealth to escape the consequences of their immoral actions like that is the ultimate condemnation of your system like that like you can't let that happen and like that's all we do is let that happen
4: yeah Mm -hmm.
3: yeah and i mean there's just like this thing like you know we all it's hard to reckon with it all because we want to avoid acknowledging the barbarism of our society and, and sort of maintain this idea that becoming rich is a moral pursuit. Right. Right. And that, that there are heroes that we celebrate and we we're unable to really divorce ourselves from this really sick kind of mythology that we have to the point where, yeah, that the message really is, well, if you're rich enough, you can do anything. That's really the thing that I think resonates with all of these examples, which is doesn't, if you're rich enough, you can you can fuck it. Just buy the fucking newspaper that's talking bad about you, and just silence them. Right? Just yeah, do that. Literally. That's easy. You want to yeah. stop people from talking about you? Get into publishing. Like I've I've heard you talk a lot. I've heard you talk before in other interviews about people like even you know Springer, the the right. owner of Politico, and just generally even how we we're constantly we have these figures who are now getting into the media sphere too yeah. and being able to massage and control the narratives from there because again you can make the rules up w- yeah. when you have a certain amount of money
2: do you have you like seen anything where you're like mm-hmm. while wow, people are really quick to just justify this and move on like other than by the families themselves but just like in as you are bringing this to people's attention have you seen like do people seem surprised because i, I my concern is that like People have ultimately accepted that like wealth is the only goal, and yes, the entire enterprise is immoral, but like fuck it like that's <laughs> that's the way it is
4: I do feel there's a there, there's a change in 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 that consciousness i feel I feel that that people are becoming more aware of that and trying to do something good with the money that they're making, you know to an extent, but yeah, you're right I mean you know there were people when you know, I spent four years in Berlin. From Berlin, you know, doing research, I moved from New York to Berlin in 2017 to do research for this book and to write it. And you know, there are people who said, ah, you know, Germany has done such a great job at, at you know uh, at reckoning with with our history." And that's not, you know, that's not really the point. I think Germany, to a large extent, has done a great job and is a fantastic country. It's just that I feel that the Most powerful, and not only the most economically powerful, but you know the 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 family that controls BMW, Germany's wealthiest family, the Quants, they you know are also the largest political donors to to what was Angela Merkel's party, right? And and you know with economic power also comes great political power, and that's you know it's the one at the very top that are still glossing over or leaving out this history.
2: Yeah. Well, thank you for, for writing this book. (laughs) Thanks for coming on our show and talking to our listeners about it. Uh, you're not, we're not letting you go yet. I just wanted to thank you. Yeah, yeah. no, you're you're stuck for another (laughs) 10 minutes, but yeah. And people, people can (laughs) go out and get this book now and we suggest you do. Let's take a quick break and then we'll come back and talk Coachella, you guys. And we're back. And just at a surface level, that, have you guys watched any any Coachella coverage? Have you watched any of the performances? Streamed anything?
3: No. I just saw pictures of people, celebrities that were there.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I've seen like the 2 seconds of a Billie Eilish performance that they keep showing me on Twitter to be like <laughs> check it out. It was like the number one trending thing for like four days out of the five days this week, the same clip over and over again. I don't know if my Twitter like is broken or or what, but it just felt felt like they really wanted me to, to watch that. But those two seconds looked like there was a lot of energy there, you know? I, I I'm not that interested in like watching video of live music performances personally. That's just like not a thing. No, nah, really. I
3: mean, uh, unless you're watching like an actual produced like music, like a rock documentary or concert documentary. But yeah, yeah, yeah. Phone exactly. footage of a live show not gonna kind of work. But I mean, the wildest thing was to see uh like Leonardo DiCaprio with like just completely masked up, like like blowing through there like some ghost, <laughs>
4: like oh, just,
3: wow. just being like I'm here, but you'll never see my face, and I'm vaping, but. Yeah.
2: <laughs> The yeah, he, he had a mask on that like covered up most of his face. It Looked like yeah. one of those uh ma- those uh fencing like f- masks. But, so you got some tickets? You're trying to unload, Jack, or
3: what? Yeah, what yeah. Do, I'm just your, saying your it looks tight, me.
2: and like people should maybe think about like hitting me up on Twitter. Uh, DMs <laughs> are open, and this weekend, second weekend's supposed to be the best. Yeah. So just <laughs> check it out. Uh, so that's been Coachella. No. So Jacobin did this article uh, where they were talking about like, you know, Coachella continues to be at the bleeding edge of capitalist bullshit. And there's like some good points in there. I just think they're a little bit dismissive of like how potent like this, this festival and this ideal is, you know, they, they highlight the barge. Barges full of garbage and like months of water supply being sucked out of a very delicate ecosystem in single weekends Uh, this year there's an NFT spin on it where you're given an NFT desert flower seed and then you get to sit back and watch it bloom and if you get one of the six rare desert flowers if that's what your NFT blooms into you get like I don't know like the big stuffed animal or some shit I don't know insulin what's that said so you get insulin oh yeah yeah exactly <laughs> so but it truly feels like the the nft market is just evolving into a elementary school carnival
3: oh yeah that. they yeah. and the, the people who keep hawking them cannot read the room ever <laughs> Zig, Cody Ziegler pointed out this thing that there was like an nft like a board ape yacht club thing that was supposed to be in like in like sort of coincide with 420 and like weed justice for black people but as an nft and you're like this is all bad (laughs) like this is so has completely no awareness at all around what anyone thinks of this or even what the imagery is of like putting an ape with like the context of like black Mm -hmm. people are incarcerated because of like weed charges um anyway it's just yeah that that ball keeps rolling steadily But so the
2: the detail that jumped out to me is just kind of having some familiarity with the history of Americans currently known as the baby boomers that Burning Man or uh, sorry, Coachella was originally designed by its founders as a synthesis of 90s music festivals, Burning Man and, quote, the 60s era longing for a new world, which three days in the desert helps satisfy. Mm. And I just thought that was... Like to be dismissive of that is a mistake that's like so specific and clear, and it was so effective with the baby boomers. you know they had like all these revolutionary impulses, and like they took that and it with the case of Coachella, they give it a fun like pretty release valve that's neatly contained in the middle of the desert, doesn't actually have any impact. And in fact, enriches American Express or whoever the corporate sponsors are. But like Woodstock was a music festival conceived by Fifth Avenue like ad men. And like that history is like only slowly like trickled out. But any sort of idealism of the 60s like got turned into just like advertising aesthetic, basically. And the people who got rich off of that aesthetic are in the business of making sure that like you understand it's just an aesthetic that is like fun to visit every once in a while and you know it, it's created the current world like the what what happened with the 60s and like i highly recommend uh the electric kool-aid acid tests the tracking of the merry pranksters and like the LSD movement that sprung up around like the Grateful Dead and Ken Kesey and like that just kind of falling apart but i don't know like we like that's very that's very potent to be like yeah no we just like create this little pop-up shop Disneyland for people where we you know make beautiful advertisement versions of the issues you care about you get to take home a souvenir you get to take pictures there that like put you in an environment where it seems like you're actually engaging with the thing and then you're done and like that you can go back to the big loneliness (laughs) as someone recently called it when talking about Reese's eggs and I just think it's it's important to recognize that, like, that group that, like, started out with those idealistic impulses are now the group that's, like, funding or that's fueling, like, QAnon and the rise of Donald Trump and shit. So, like, we have an opportunity to not do that with a lot of the, like, energy around social justice and social movements. But I... I I think it's important that people like recognize that this is somewhat insidious What when it's like converted into just a an ad for American Express that you participate in creating on your Instagram feed.
3: But you're saying like it's but more than that, it, the insidious nature is to give people this like sort of well-coordinated distraction to just kind of take a little wind out of the sails. So you're like, yeah, I'm blow some steam off at Coachella. Then I can go back to toiling and not really get in the itch to like, is like, even you reference this line of saying, like, to spend three days in like a world that, uh, with three days in uh, a new world, longing for a new world, which three days in the desert helps satisfy to sort of subdue the longing for the new world.
2: Yeah. And you associate it with that. Like, suddenly your idea for like a socialist society or like community where you can like, be part of a community with other people and like be outdoors in outdoor spaces. Suddenly, that's something you associate with like a trip to the desert for three days instead of something that you like work with your uh, like the people in your community to accomplish, uh, in your community. Like it, it becomes just a part of Disneyland of like this like simulacrum of like an idealistic society that actually is contained by American Express like the like try to imagine hearing that like a revolution rose up on the Coachella campgrounds <laughs> like like uh, it's it's impossible because it's so carefully tailored there's also a new yorker article that like follows around the guy who created Coachella and you know he's just trying to make money but like the the thing that was the scariest moment for him in the history of the festival was when like people figured out how to clone the bracelets and like they had a gate crashing issue right like it's that's how carefully contained it is
3: well i mean i i think everyone's so fucked up there i don't know what they're bringing back with them at the end of it but (laughs) Uh, they may be right. subdued by the amount of drugs,
4: either way.
3: But like, it, uh, yeah, yeah,
2: it's fine. Like I don't, I don't mean to. Like I, I also don't look down on anyone going to Coachella and like sure. going and getting fucked up in the desert and like in fr- around music they love. I just think it's, I don't know, I, right? I just,
3: the packaging of it and the engaging with it. Like it's not just merely that you're going to a music festival. There are other people who are trying to do a lot of marketing, normalizing, etc. It, like it's it's not it's not it's not as i guess it's not as what it appears to maybe on the consumer side versus what you know companies like you're mentioning get out of it too like to associate their name with like oh check out the like pepsi co water filling like station and now you're like oh yeah they the water filling thing from the company that also sucks <laughs> drinking water out of the fucking earth like that sort of mixed signaling essentially yeah i don't know it just, it does, it, <laughs> <I don't know.
2: laughs> it it feels, you know. The whole thesis of our show is that there's this collective unconscious, and that like people are smarter than than the mainstream like media apparatus, like often gives them credit for. And I think, like, all of this shit matters. Like, the, the messages we get from the fact that, oh, yeah, like, the richest family in Germany are, like, Nazi billionaires. The Coachella is, like, taking all the things that are actually like serious, good, beautiful ideas that we should be thinking about incorporating into our daily lives and like turn them into a aesthetic that like you, you know, get to bathe in on Instagram for a couple days and then like move on from like, I think Mm -hmm. all that stuff is, has an impact that is what has kept people advocating like, you know, not advocating for their best interest for the past, like, 50, 60 years, basically.
3: Yeah. I mean, I wonder if the difference is, right, because at least boomers and Gen Xers, they were able to benefit from an economy that began to subdue right. a lot of those revolutionary impulses, right? Yeah. Because, like, especially with the 80s, we be like, oh, you're yuppies now, you sold out or whatever. And it's like, no, I'm now, a guy I actually have access to wealth. But millennials and younger we're not we're not following that same path so i think they am I'm, I'm i'm curious how like what what has to happen where you have to kind of really take the to subdue the urges that are so many young people feel now around like saying like dude i'm completely disillusioned by the, my lack of opportunity like i'm in fact i've become nihilistic yeah where you know how do you how do you like turn that person into like a good you know, target shopping consumer for life type person, especially when they don't even have the money to to do stuff with in the first place. I mean, I think maybe that's like the weird moment that we're in too, is like that process is a little bit slowing down because of the massive amounts of inequality.
2: Yeah. David, what are what are your thoughts, both as, you know, someone from outside the country, but also, you know, somebody who used to report for Bloomberg, like where where, where do you kind of fall on this whole, like, moment in American uh, idealism, I guess.
4: I'm I'm extremely worried about, well, particularly what's going on in America, the, the polemic, but also, and I mean, I write about that in a book, you know, when I started reporting for Bloomberg News in, in 2011 on this team, it was literally the last week of November, 2011 when when um, Zuccotti Park, when Occupy Wall Street was uh, forcibly removed overnight. It was the beginning of the debate of the 1% versus the 99% or now it's, it's transformed into the 0.1% versus the 99.9%. And that, you know, the, you know, the bifurcation of society and the you know, afterwards came Pik- Piketty, of course, who, 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 who took that to the next level and also showed, gave the historical context. But it's only gotten worse in recent years. And I'm, I'm, I'm deeply concerned for the future of America. I'm, I'm very concerned for the future of Europe as well, because it has it has similar problems, you know, in terms of the incredible inequality. Of wealth and 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 the haves and the haves not haves not, you know, is 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 also undermining you know the fabric of of Europe and the European Union, as it is in the United States, mm-hmm. in terms of uh, political spending on political capital, uh, political power, um, uh, the shaping of American capitalism, as it you know we started off this episode talking about Earth Day. And, and scientists saying, "Oh, it's only going to be two degrees, you know, in, in the next uh, century." The problem of wealth inequality at one hand, and 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 climate change at the other, which very much go hand in hand. You know, I'm 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 really sorry, but I'm, I'm worried that it's already you know it's too late you know it's that we're we're you know we're on a on on the precipice of, of day de- of, of decades of disaster and war and troubles and and you know i don't know I'm, I'm very concerned for the state of the world sorry to leave you guys with this
3: no, very no but i mean yeah yeah i think it's something we all feel because it's yeah it, there's the rigidity of it all right. when we're seeing that the way that the powers that be or the wealthy choose to solve problems right. or actually exacerbate the existing problems. And they can't see that terrible feedback loop yeah. that, you know, I think that's why a lot of people are like, well, I guess the wheels have to completely fall off for people to figure it out. Um, but can that happen? Or on the other side of it, you even see people how they're even saying like, well, you know what, we'll spend our way out of climate change. We'll build and innovate our way out of climate change and we'll just spend more money and experiment more rather than just doing the very simple thing, which is like begin to switch to renewable sources of energy and really have and think of like what the amount of, you know, carbon output that certain industries are, are, are emitting every year. But rather than doing that, it's like, no, we'll just keep doing this. And like we do, if a problem comes up, we'll just spend money to try and figure it out. But at that point, I just feel like the problems are insurmountable. Yeah, exactly. Where no amount of money can be spent to, like, I don't know, have a desalinization plant that could, you know, like hydrate an entire hemisphere. What Mm. are we talking about here in in that scenario? And I think that's what is a little bit disillusioning is that, oh, we see that the same problem solving mentality is, is we're just going to stay in place because of the people that are in power consistently. Well,
2: David, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for writing this book. Where can people find you, follow you, get the book, all that good stuff?
4: If you, if if you want to get the book, get it at bookshop.org because they support local and independent booksellers. And if you want to order it online, go there or just go to your local bookstore and get it and get it there. Uh, you can follow me at, uh, at David DeYoung on Twitter and Instagram.
2: Yeah, you. Yep. And is there a tweet or some of the work of social media you've been enjoying?
4: I am still enjoying three weeks later the tweet by Elon Musk about getting dissed at Bergheim. And he said, I saw peace written on the wall at Bergheim. They refused, I refused to enter, which was like sent at 7 a.m. in the morning, Berlin time. And it was unclear whether he was rejected from Bergheim, the famous nightclub in Berlin, which is impossible to get into, or whether he did not want to enter. But some people are speculating that because he was, you know, he he received so much you know, he was laughed about so much following a tweet that they that he launched his hostile takeover of Twitter oh, really? the following <laughs> week.
2: Wait, his his tweet, original tweet, which I, I uh you know, I try to stay up on Elon Musk. He's yeah, one of my favorite thought leaders. But, yeah, uh, right, right, <laughs> what? Yes,
4: right. I'm sure. Yeah. What? The tweet yeah. was, yeah, uh, the, the exact tweet was, they wrote peace on the wall at Bergheim. I refused, enter. I refused, to enter.
2: Which was- They that, wrote it was peace said, on the wall.
4: Like P-E-A-C-E? Yeah. No, peace. Like peace. Like, like love and peace. peace. Right. Yeah. yeah. Huh. and And I refused, enter. And it was sent at about 11 p.m. East Coast time. So it was 5 a.m. Twitter time. Exactly. Prime Twitter time, 5 a.m. Berlin time. He had just opened his Giga Factory in Berlin. And uh, I guess he wanted to celebrate at Berghain. That certainly didn't happen. Berghain, notorious for its its strict door policy, uh, and it's uh, cooler than cool being able to enter. I was lucky enough yeah. to gain entry a few times but only because of my much cooler friends. And, <laughs> but but uh, I found it yeah, I still I'm still enjoying the tweet, especially now seeing the entire battle between Musk and Twitter for who's right. going to control Twitter. And uh yeah. yeah, we'll we'll see that being decided in the next couple of weeks. Yeah. I'm team I'm team Twitter. Yeah. Right. A hundred percent.
3: It's odd to think that uh, his, him getting dissed at uh, the door at Burgine is like uh, Trump at that correspondence dinner. Right.
2: right. Yeah. It's yeah. like, that's yeah. my
3: originary hurt yes. that I will use to launch this destruction exactly. campaign. Exactly. Sounds like Very the
2: good. ultimate goal of this whole uh, system we've been talking about yep.
3: still doesn't make you happy. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. Exactly.
4: Exactly. Yeah this is oh the wow trajectory. richest
3: asshole in the world can't yeah. walk through a door yeah. now yeah. pissed will buy twitter uh, cool sign me up miles where can
2: people find you what is a tweet you've been enjoying
3: uh find me on twitter and instagram at miles of gray also you know we got a basketball podcast mad Boosties, yo, yo. Uh jack and i and also my other reality trash tv show Four twenty day fiance, check that pot out. If you like ninety day, first tweet I like from Blair Saki at Blair Saki. She tweeted, "I really want to fall in love, but not, but not with any man I know or have met or seen before." <laughs> just great. Just you just want something new, that perfect thing that's out there. And then uh, another one from Doctor Hurdy Gurdy at Not Really a Doctor tweeted, "I like big butts, and I cannot lie, my brother." like small butts and cannot tell the truth. Each of us guards a door one leads to an anaconda one leads to an anaconda that is sprung the other to certain death <laughs> I love that I love that.
2: I would have loved it more if it wasn't also my tweet. Miles, you son of God, a bitch. You know what? We got to coordinate before. I know, you know? man. Anyways, uh, yeah, latest episode <laughs> of Boosties is a good <laughs> one. Dropped yesterday. We're talking Anthony Edwards. It's a blast. Yeah,
3: Justin Tinsley.
2: Another tweet I've been enjoying, uh, Vinny Thomas at Vin underscore A tweeted, My sauce packet drawer is a thriving metropolis and a beacon of diversity. <laughs> I think that is true of a lot of sauce packet drawers. Do and you then, throw away Hunt's ketchup packets?
3: Do you keep them? Hunt's? Yeah. I throw away. Heinz? If you get them. Heinz you gotta keep.
2: Yeah, yeah, always. All right. And then somebody tweeted for those of you who are going to continue to wear masks on your flights, how will you respond to a passenger asking you why you are still wearing a mask? And Hannah Michaels tweeted my breath smells like cum. And I think that's a good answer. <laughs> I think that's the way to go. I'm going to go with that. You can find us on Twitter at Daily Zeitgeist. We're at The Daily Zeitgeist on Instagram. We have a Facebook fan page and a website, dailyzeitgeist.com, where we post our episodes and our footnotes, footnotes, where we link off to the information that we talked about in today's episode, as well as a song that we think you might enjoy. Miles, what song do we think they might enjoy?
3: Okay, so this is a collaboration between this artist from Guinea uh, named Fale Nioke, F-A-L-L-E-N-I-O-K-E. And this, just like, I believe this guy is a UK producer, London-based producer named Ghost Culture. And this track that they're on together called Le Wole, L-E-Y-W-O-L-E, is like a really great synthesis of like West African vocals and like lyrical stylings, but with this... You know, kind of like obscure electronic, like edited African percussion beat on it. And I don't know. It's just a very good blend of musical styles that fits very well and it just feels like a very original track. Uh so check out this track. It's called Le Wole by Ghost Culture and Fale Nioke. Speaking of ghost culture, check out
2: uh Jamie Loftus's the trailer for her new podcast is up and it is all about spiritualism, which is like the American religion of ghosts, basically. Mm. You know, it was, it was practiced by a lot of people around the time of the Civil War. It's called Ghost Church and it's, you know, the thing that was started by the Fox sisters who were communing with the dead and the dead would talk back by, by knocking on walls, which was a scam. They were actually doing the knocking. But that is still around <laughs> to this day. And mm. the trailer's dope. Uh, Again, Ghost Church by Jamie Loftus That is going to do it for us This morning, we are back this afternoon To tell you what is trending And we will talk to Y'all then I didn't do the part where I say The Daily Zeitgeist is a production of iHeartRadio For more podcasts from iHeartRadio Visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, Or wherever you listen to your favorite shows Yeah, and that'll do it That'll do, Pig uh, For today's (laughs) I will do big. full episode back this afternoon to tell you what's trending. Bye.
1: Bye.